Right, okay, so today we are looking at Luke's Gospel again, and we're looking at Luke 9, 1-17, sending out of the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000. But I wanted to have a bit of discussion with you guys and just kind of get your thoughts and feelings on what views of Christianity have you come across in your lives? You know, what do other people think? What do friends think? What does the media think? How is Christianity portrayed in your lives, in kind of just the wider lives of people in general? That it's like really restricting. Like you can't do anything. You can't do this, can't do that. Like people just feel, I don't know, you kind of feel that people think that you can't do anything and you can't like live life to the fullest or whatever. Yeah. I think I'm a bit like Rosie, but like everyone kind of assumes everyone's a literalist and everyone like sticks to like all the rules and everyone's the same. Whereas like people don't understand that that everyone has different beliefs, even within Christianity as a whole. Um, For me, I was just going to say like, I think like Christianity is like quite stigmatised. Like, I don't know if this is just like a Scottish thing, but like we don't really talk about religion. Not just with like people my age, but it's just like a, where we don't really talk about it with other people just in case um, like they disagree or whatever. It's a bit like talking about politics at the dinner table uh, rather than being quite like an open and okay conversation to have. So yeah, it's quite stigmatised and like negatively portrayed. I mean, I also want to say this um, at school. They often ask me about my, my faith and I tell them that I don't see myself as a religious person. I see myself to be a follower of Christ. I don't believe that religion is something that I believe in. I believe I have a faith. I follow God because I love him. And for me, that's, that, that's, not, that's not religion, that's faith. Um, there's been quite like a few negative ones, which is like, it does happen in society so I thought I'd pop in a positive one lots of um, people can be like oh Christians are so nice and like giving like you kind of get that as well um you also do get like again like it can be quite stigmatized things like oh Christians hate gay people and things like that but obviously that's not true we love all but there's positive and negative sides to it I think I think also like following on from Katie's like positive positive point is that you know kind of very similar to what's happened here is that you know people you have a group of 10 people and you go icebreaker hi I'm Neve um, and I'm Christian and then you know say two out of the 10 are Christians too you've like automatically like made like not automatically but you've sort of gained people who have interest with you and so like what's happened here like we've become you know this like little little Christian family so not only and, you know, it gives you something in common with other people. So I think that's a really positive thing that is good about being a Christian. Yeah, definitely, 100%. There's a lot of, yeah, really, really good points um, that have come out of that. Yeah, no, so I would totally agree with all that, to be honest. I think just kind of secondary school is quite a big place where like, Christianity is kind of viewed a lot more judgmentally than in any other place. I think there's quite a lot of secular. They don't really, as you, uh, someone said, there's like a stigma um around it and you know like you know sometimes you might get a bit targeted a bit got at every now and then about that for you know all these reasons that we've spoken about but i think you know we can actually have quite a lot of encouragement from from the bible from scripture when this happens i mean just a couple of examples that i've got for you today you know luke 6 22 related to a couple of weeks ago this was um jesus sermon on the plane Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. You know, that just shows that 
like no matter what the world might think of us, no matter what our friends might think of us, that we can have hope and just live for Christ because he's the most important thing in our lives. And an interesting thing, actually, if you look back to kind of the early church, if you look back to, you know, first century, you can actually see that the term Christian originated as a derogatory term. So it originated in Antioch, which is near modern day uh, Antakya, southern Turkey. And yeah, as I said, it was used as a derogatory term towards the early church. They were like, oh, you know, look at these Christians. It literally means kind of like little Christs. And yeah, basically the early church, they just they kind of took it on board and they were like, yeah, you know what? We are little Christ. We are following in Christ's example. And they really just took that on board. And quite interestingly, it's actually referenced in the Old Testament a couple of times. It talks about, quotes my anointed ones in 1 Chronicles 16, 22 and Psalm 105, 15, which kind of links to little Christ. Because you've got Greek Christos, which is the anointed, you know, how we are called to be little Christs and follow Jesus as our great example. Yeah, so this this passage that we're going to be looking at today is Luke 9, 1 to 17. Yeah, and if you've got a Bible, turn to that, open it up. If not, you can find it online. Just go just type in Luke 9, 1 to 17 or pull it up Bible Gateway or something. Would anyone be keen to read those 17 verses to us today? I don't mind doing it. If yeah, you want. that would be great. Thank you, Lost. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He then told them to take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others said that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they returned to Jesus. They reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, um, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who need, needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Right, so this passage that Charlotte just read, it is the opening of Act 2 of Luke's Gospel. If you imagine that Luke's Gospel is split into three parts, you have the first part, uh, Luke 1 to 8, the second part, Luke 9 to 17, and then the final part, Luke 17, to the end of his Gospel. And this is an opening straight after the finale of the majestic show of Jesus's power and authority in chapter 8. You know, it immediately follows the raising of Jairus's daughter, 
we can see, you know, chapter eight is designed and written by Luke in a way that shows Jesus' power and authority. He calms the storm. He heals a demon-possessed man. Uh, he heals a sick woman and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And this shift from chapter eight to chapter nine shows that it is now our turn to step out in our faith, to follow Christ, to take up our cross and follow him. But quite interestingly, if you look at the events of chapter eight, it actually is referenced in a psalm written thousands of years before these things happened. So Psalm 107, there's a couple of verses which clearly link to Luke's gospel, to Luke chapter eight. It's prophetic. It's looking at God's unchanging faithfulness. And you know, this was written in about 1200 BC, and it just clearly shows that God is good and faithful and unchanging. Psalm 107, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Uh, so verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Verse 25, for he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. Verse 29, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And this just clearly alludes forward to Jesus' calming of the storm and all the healings that he did. And it really just shows that, you know, God has immense power and authority. And if back then he can calm a storm and he can heal and he can raise people from the dead, he can do the same today because we know that we have faith in a God who does not change even when the world around us changes. So looking back at this passage that we've just read, Luke 9, we can see in verse 1, Luke immediately opens up with Jesus calling together the 12 and giving them power and authority. It says here, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So, you know, after we've had this show of Jesus' power and authority, he now turns to his disciples, he turns to his followers and he says, look, you now have this same power and authority. You know, we know that Jesus is our example to follow. And I mean, disciples literally translates as followers. Here, Jesus is turning to them and he's giving them the power and authority that he has just shown in the previous chapter. And, you know, we are called to follow Christ because you look at, I mean, 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And, you know, some might argue that Luke's gospel is geographically grouped and it's written depending on where Jesus was and where he was mostly based. But I think actually it's more based on who the focus is on. We can see the first part that, you know, the focus has been on Jesus, on who he is and on what he's been doing. And, you know, this is all for us. And then we can see as it moves on into the kind of second part that the focus shifts on to disciples and what they are called to do and what we are called to do in response to Jesus. And yeah, so, you know, we know that Jesus's power and authority is immense, that he is unprecedented and never before seen. And that, you know, it evokes fear in the disciples. You know, you can see after he calms the storm, verse 25 of chapter eight, in fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. And an interesting thing also is that Jesus isn't diluting his power and authority to give it to them. He is giving the full deal. You know, it says verse one, power and authority to drive out all demons. It's not just some, it's all. And the reason why the disciples are able to do this, as we see in the later verses, is that they're not trying to do it by their own strength. They're doing it by the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives them. You know, we might think that this is impossible. You might think that as just 12 men to go out into the surrounding area and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick, you might think this is an impossible task. And it is 
if we do it by our own strength. But the great thing is that if we do it by Christ's strength, then it is not impossible. If you just look at it, what he's telling them to do, it seems completely countercultural. Verse three, uh, you know, some of you might have come across the idea of Jesus's upside down kingdom. You know, he tells them to go out on a journey to preach the good news, but he tells them to take nothing for it, to take no provisions, to take no food, money, extra clothes or a staff. He takes them just to go and to wholly trust in him that God will provide. And this is the essential thing to remember about the gospel, but it's all about Christ and almost that our weakness is our strength. You know, if we acknowledge we are weak, then we learn to rely on the one who gives strength, the one who is strength itself. You know, if we just rely on Jesus and humble ourselves rather than trying to do it, then just everything in our life will shift and focus onto Jesus. And an interesting kind of side note here is this little phrase talking about taking no staff. It's often a point of contention as some people think that, oh, the Gospels clearly contradict themselves and how can they be cohesive? So people say, look, in Matthew and Luke, it says to take no staff, but in Mark, it says to take one staff. And people are like, well, clearly this this isn't correct. But actually, if you look back at the original kind of language, Jesus gave his command in Aramaic. And Jesus' Aramaic command translates as take no staffs. And this phrase, take no staffs, can be interpreted in two ways. If I say take no staffs, you might think, okay, that means to take no staff at all. But if I say take no staffs, plural, you might think, okay, that means you could take one staff, but not more than one. So that's just kind of, yeah, just to clear that up, that it can be taken two ways. Yeah, that explains why there is a slight difference there. This idea of total and utter dependence on God, these disciples go out with nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. And yes, it is countercultural. And that's that's how we're called to live, ultimately. I mean, you can see in the first two chapters of Galatians, it clearly shows that we mustn't compromise the gospel to please culture. We mustn't water down the gospel to fit around culture because culture changes and culture shifts but we know that god doesn't change and his word doesn't change so we must make sure to hang on to that in its true and genuine meaning so we can see here you know this first part of the sending out of the 12 it seems impossible it seems like jesus has given them an impossible task but we know it's not and we can actually see in verses six to ten the latter half that the impossible is possible with god you know they're sent out on a mission and just look at their impact look at everything that they achieve so After they've been on this mission, I wondered what are some of the responses to the disciples? Yeah, how do they respond to this after they come back? Probably that they weren't going to come back alive or like fulfill their mission. Like, say if someone was sent out to do a difficult task now, that seemed pretty impossible. They'd be like, good luck. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, you can imagine, yeah, these people would have been like, oh, you know, you'd never, you're like, you'll never manage it. But then, I mean, if you look at the, the latter half of this passage, you know, verses eight, nine and ten, you can almost imagine their shock and amazement when they think, oh, you know, this bunch of fishermen. I mean, it says in Acts that they were just unschooled, ordinary men. There was nothing special about the disciples. The only thing that was special was God and the fact that they partnered with him. And you can see that the disciples, through Christ's strength, achieved such amazing things that, you know, they were likened to biblical greats. People think, you know, are they Elijah? Are they John the Baptist come back from the dead? Are they the great prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah? You know, they were so filled with the spirit 
that they seemed utterly transformed. And an interesting thing is that so the disciples go out and they preach the gospel and look at the response. Things happen when the gospel is preached. People respond. It's literally the parable of the sower in action. Just one chapter ago, opening of chapter eight, we can see Jesus with the parable of the sower talking about preaching the good news, how you throw some seed and it will scatter on different types of soil. But the seed doesn't change, but how people may respond to it does. And I think a really good thing to remember about that and a really good thing to take confidence in is that we are not called to save people. We are not called to convert people. All we're called to do is just to preach the good news, just to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, about his death and resurrection. And God will do the rest. And, you know, God makes the seed grow. It's not the farmer who makes the seed grow. All the farmer does is sow it. And it's, it's God who does the work. But yeah, so this kind of this end part of Jesus sending out the 12, uh, quite interesting that Luke doesn't major on the beheading of John. So it's the Luke's gospel written to a judge in Rome, Theophilus, uh, who was overseeing the Apostle Paul's trial. And he's trying to portray the idea that uh, Christianity is the true form of Judaism. And obviously Theophilus, Roman judge, Luke doesn't really want to dwell on a Roman official ordering an execution. So he kind of just glosses over that relatively quickly, whereas Matthew go inside in quite a lot of detail. So that's the kind of first bit looking at Jesus sending out of the 12. But then the passage continues on to the feeding of the 5,000. So it's kind of like two stories, but with a continual timeline. You know, we can see that obviously they've been out on their uh, mission. They've done great things. They have healed many people. And the like regional leader has heard about this, Herod the Tetrarch. He's like, you know, what is going on? Who are these people? So, yeah, so there's been quite a big stir, a big response to this. And then they come back after their kind of little trip and they come back and they report back to Jesus. You know, verse 10, they report to Jesus what they had done. And Jesus takes them with him and they withdrew themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So they come back. They're super excited from their trip. They've been quite busy and you can imagine that they're looking forward to a nice, quiet place for a ministry debrief, a bit of a chat, a bit of a catch up and kind of just talking about the next steps, you would think. But we can see here, verse 11, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. This hope of a quiet debrief, absolutely shattered. A huge crowd follows Jesus and his disciples. And I was wondering, how does Jesus respond to this and how does this reflect on his character? Well, instead of telling him to go away, as most pastors at the time would, because um, handling large crowd is difficult, well, he welcomes them. He welcomes them. He offers them to sit down in front of them and begins to teach them and heals them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, most people, because obviously Jesus was, he would have been a rabbi, he would have been well-known. And you think that, you know, most people, if they have a plan, they'd stick to it and they'd think, look, I have been busy all week. I just need time off. I don't want to deal with this now. But not Jesus. Jesus, as you say, he responds with grace. He teaches and heals them. And this is just one of many accounts of Jesus's amazing and loving character. So we can see here, obviously, after Jesus has spoken to them, he's taught them, he's healed them. The disciples are like, you know, come on, it's getting a little bit late. They are in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. It's a deserted place. You know, the disciples are like, look, we kind of need to speed this up. We need to send them away so they can get some food. And, you know, this is a practical consideration from the disciples. You know, they're like, look, we don't want these people to starve, to go hungry. 
But an interesting thing is that the crowd, they're listening with such intent to Jesus' words, they're not worrying about how they're going to eat. They are just trusting that Jesus will provide a way. And we can see here that's exactly what he does. You know, they're in a totally deserted place. The shops are a long way away. Because there's so many of them, there's 5,000 men, but you could imagine there'd be approximately 12 to 15,000 people in total, which is quite a lot. Yeah, so to get food for that, they'd have to go to a couple of surrounding villages because one village wouldn't be able to provide food for 15,000 people because quite small towns in this area. But yeah, so then Jesus turns to them, verse 13, and he says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And, you know, Jesus wants to show us and to teach us a lesson that this partnership with God's spirit it's not a nine to five job it's not got hours where you can clock in and clock out on a regular it's just watching and waiting to see what God is doing and then joining in with that you know a verse that immediately springs to mind is Galatians 5 25 since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit and yeah an interesting thing just to think about and just reflect on is do we treat partnership with the spirit with a schedule do we try and schedule it in you know only sundays or you know only when you meet with other christians it's just something to think about are we aware are we looking for where god is working in our own lives today and yeah so this verse where jesus turns to the disciple and he is like you give them something to eat jesus wants to use the limited resources of the 12 and just to really work with them through this and you know you can see here obviously these disciples in the previous bit, we've just seen Jesus sent them out and they have done great miracles. They've healed people. They have preached the good news. But here we can see that they are doubtful. They are kind of just overwhelmed, I would assume, by the quantity of people there. You'd imagine, look, Jesus, how can we feed all these people? We've only got five pieces of bread and two fish. Like, what are we meant to do? And I think that it's probably the size of the crowd that must have just overwhelmed they must have thought you know this is too big for jesus they must have just thought you know how on earth are we going to deal with this but jesus again he clearly shows that we mustn't limit god it doesn't matter what limited resources we have you know ultimately we're all flawed human beings we are incredibly limited but look what god can do with limited resources so jesus takes these loaves and fish and he prays later on and he you know is just utterly dependent on god and the essential thing to remember here is that God can use you. And this passage is included to show that we can partner with God no matter what we can or can't bring. Because God is amazing and he can do things through us that we can never begin to imagine. And in this passage, what three things does Jesus tell the disciples to do? He's like, give them something to eat. And they're like, whoa, we can't do that. We don't know how to. What does he tell them to do after they have shown that they haven't got the faith to do that? like to just believe <laughs> believe that it will be enough mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i mean verses 14 to 15 jesus you know he tells them that you know even though they might not have the faith to perform the miracle to multiply the food he still includes them you know he tells them to split the crowds into groups of 50 kind of you'd imagine that like extended family to distribute the food and to collect the leftovers so they are you know just managing the admin side of it and it just clearly shows that no matter what we can't bring no matter how we are that god can still use us and you can see here verse 17 everyone there ate and was satisfied all you know twelve thousand people managed to eat enough to satisfy themselves from from what started with five loaves and two fish 
Jesus was able to perform a miracle so that everyone was able to eat and be full and content with what they've eaten. But an important thing is, you know, there wasn't just enough for people just to like, just about be satisfied. There was enough people to be satisfied. And there were 12 big baskets of food left over. And that is pretty amazing. You know, the promise that God will provide. I mean, just look at God's track record. We've already said that God doesn't change, that he is the same 2000 years ago and he is the same now and he will be the same 2000 years in the future. You know, if we look back at the Old Testament, God will provide. I mean, he provided for Israel in the wilderness. Exodus 16, 4, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. You know, in this passage from Exodus, the Israelites have just been brought out of Egypt by God and they are complaining, you know, how are we going to get food in the desert? But God is like, look, no, I will literally rain down bread from heaven so that you can eat. And, you know, God doesn't change. So we can just have full and utter faith in him. So I guess to kind of wrap this all up, just the first part, Jesus sending out the 12. I think an important thing to remember is that just to really take confidence and to not be kind of scared, you know, it might seem kind of daunting that, you know, the 12 were sent out. But if you look at the other gospels, you can tell that they were sent in pairs. You know, we're called to do this in fellowship, mutual encouragement of one another, that we don't have to do this alone. Not only will we have God, but we'll have the family of Christians around us to support us through it as well. So I mentioned earlier that the word Christian, it originated back in the first century, and it was a derogatory term used towards the early church. But even though it does mean little Christs, it actually means a little bit more than that. So we know that Luke came from Antioch, his home church, believers were first called Christians. And this Greek word, Christianos, means you know a follower of Christ. But if we split this down into two parts, you've got Christos and Ianos, and they kind of put them together. So the first part, Christus, is obviously anointed one, Messiah, the one who was anointed, Jesus, you know, son of man, the one who came to deliver Israel. And then if you look at the adjectival ending taken from the Latin suffix of Ianus, basically this was used to show that the men or things referred to belong to the person whose name the suffix is added, if that makes sense. So you'd imagine that it would be generally used for like sheep or cattle or something. They'd be like, oh, yeah, this belongs to this people. But here we can see that Christianos means belonging to Christ. And how beautiful and fitting that is. I mean, it's all throughout the New Testament. 1 John 4, 4, but you belong to God, my dear children. Yeah, like we all belong to the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. We are called into Christ's family. And I think, you know, this idea of being adopted into a true family, it is the idea of true and perfect family life. You know, obviously we are all human. Family life can be messy. Family life can be, you know, mixed up, painful. But in God's family, there is only perfection. You can be yourself. You are valued. And there's not just one of you. You're not alone, but there are many. And the thing with God's family is that we know that the head of the house, God, will always protect the household that with him we can live in confidence that we have a God who is above everything, who is above every ruler, every nation, all the political, social, environmental turmoil. We know that we have a God who is in control over all of that with his immense power and authority. However, you know, this belonging, this adoption into God's family comes at a cost. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. And this price that Paul talks about in this letter was the blood of Jesus. Jesus, you know, he came to earth 
God became human. He lived on earth and he lived the perfect life that we could never even achieve. He lived a totally sinless life and then died on the cross for our sins. There he took the punishment that we were due for every sin that we have committed, for all the sins that we are committing, all the times we'll sin in the future. Christ has paid the cost. You know, his blood was shed on the cross. And because of that, we are able to be forgiven. But he didn't just live a perfect life and then die because that would just be a pointless sacrifice. He lived a perfect life, died and then was raised again. He was resurrected three days later. And it is because of that resurrection that we can have hope in God, that we can have the eternal hope that is in Christ. You know, the resurrection is key. It is essential to the Christian faith because, I mean, even Paul says without the resurrection, our faith is futile. So we know that because Christ lived, died and was raised again, that if we turn to him, if we acknowledge our sins and repent and believe, then we are forgiven. And we should be honoured to call ourselves Christians, to live for Christ by his example because of the work that he has done on the cross. And a challenge for you guys this week. How can we proclaim the kingdom of God in our lives this week? You know, we might be going back to school. We might be, you know, meeting people. How can we live for Christ this week? Yeah, just something to think about as we go forward from this week.